0: This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet and era we find ourselves on and in. Well, I'm back from D.C., a little jet-lagged, so I thought I'd take it easy today before we begin our final push on the last chapter of the book, before we hit the conclusion. Um, I'm back from a great week in D.C. where we rolled out the book, and there was great excitement Uh, We met with our publicist, we did a salon dinner for the Stand Together Alliance, where we met with high-level members of the Republican Party about the book and trying to unify the Jeffersonian and Jacksonian wings of the party, and we were overwhelmed, John Goodnight and I, my faithful sidekick Robin, to my Batman, we were overwhelmed by the response. Uh, It's been great and very exciting as we begin to get through this process. Again, we will hit this hard in September, where you can pre-order the book, uh, I need your help to break the Amazon algorithm and for you to write reviews, and if we do that, uh, it will lead to a multiplier of the book, but we'll talk about using our wonderful community as shock troops when the book can be pre-ordered in September. Until then, at the end of June, we have to be done with the chapter on Ronald Reagan and America as Example. I'm really looking forward to that. Just finish the notes. I'll start writing tomorrow. And the conclusion is July, then it's copy editing like crazy, um, through the rest of July and into August, uh, with the due date for it to go out to White Fox September 3rd. But before that, I'm sitting here ensconced at my desk, and I thought we'd continue our world through the various great powers' eyes looking at India today maybe the most fascinating of all the countries out there. And I wanted to do this because next week we're hitting the road again. We're playing a war game and uh, doing a keynote for Andrew Barman and the Network Forum, one of our favorite partners. I look forward to seeing you all in Athens for four or five days. Uh, then we're back, finish, and then it's off for a 4th of July speech, ironically, in, uh, with our friends in Investec, ironically, in London, uh, where the Revolutionary War comes. And I'm excited to do that speech from scratch on the 4th of July and then adding in some ideas about the book, and American Geopolitics. But ahead of that, I thought we'd do the world through India's eyes today. When I run out of positive things to say over the last 10 or so years, I mention India, 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 because it's so obviously the world's rising power. And yes, it took the mainstream media up until, well, yesterday to figure this out. Uh, But people are finally coming around, and the science are all there for all the good analysts, and the bad analysts are at last catching up. And the reason for India's rise is pretty simple. It's now the largest single, in terms of population, country in the world, recently overtaking China. It's the only country in the world with demography for catch-up growth. The demography is good. It's such a young country. It's bound to get a boom out of this, much as China did a generation ago during the halcyon days of Deng Xiaoping now it's India's turn to catch up and its demography is so good that the mean age for India is 28 whereas the mean age presently for the United States and China is 38 that's a heck of a demographic dividend and this was so obvious and I remember talking to senior Indian leadership years ago meeting at the great Oberoi Hotel one of the great hotels of the world in Delhi and saying look And notice the terms I'm using. If you're moderately more competent than the Congress Party, I said this to the incoming Hindu nationalist BJP party, if you're moderately more competent than they are, moderately less corrupt, moderately more pro-business, and crucially, if there is not a pogrom against the Muslims in the country, you will grow at a minimum at six or seven percent. If you're any good at this, you're going to grow at Deng Xiaoping numbers more like 8 or 9%. And you will do this for the next generation avoiding war. So that's 6 to 10% growth for 20 years. And India, you know, is much like the Wild West was in the 1880s. Uh, it has problems, and they're apparent in the Wild West there were still Indian wars going on. Uh, most of the West was not set up in states, and so there were boundary disputes. There were rule of law problems. Uh, there was lack of solid property rights. The justice had to come to the West. Think of the shootout of the OK Corral, symbolizing this with the Earp brothers taking on the Clampets and the Cowboys. Um, all this is there, and all these problems are real, but it's growing at 8 to 12 percent. So everybody knew that in a generation, none of these problems would be there anymore. And India, like that. It retains a series of problems. It is still overly bureaucratic and sclerotic in its bureaucracy. It has infrastructure problems. It has problems that everybody who has an education can be a computer programmer, and you still have a disparity in income uh, between people who are exceptionally poor and those who are rising and becoming part of the modern economy. So you need education to take care of this over a couple generations. All this is true. And for all these problems, much as was true for the Wild West, none of it really matters, because if you're going to grow at the numbers, I say, based on demography and population, you're going to boom within a couple generations, and that what, what matters. And so the demography means that India is the only great power in the world with real catch-up growth over the next generation. It is the ultimate rising power. And indeed, Goldman Sachs got this right, that by 2050, into the medium run now, If you look at the three great economic powers in the world, they're all going to be in the Indo-Pacific. And this is a massive change in the way that we think. No longer will transatlantic relations dominate the study of international relations. The Indo-Pacific will now do that because the three great economic powers by 2050 undoubtedly will be the United States, China, and India. And that is going to change the face of the world. And that makes India a pivotal great power as it rises. And that's that's what's going on. And, and you see this, the the IMF has said that in, in uh 2023 this year, India is going to grow at 6.1%, the greatest growth rate of any of the great powers out there. And better, it will grow by 6.8%, according to the IMF, in 2024. So it's keeping to these six to ten percent numbers that it wants very easily and is dwarfing the growth. Of certainly established powers like the United States and Europe, but also rising powers such as China, which are simply not going to do that kind of growth anytime in the near future. India is projected that Indian growth will contribute, according to the IMF, 15% of all global growth in 2023. Think of that. India, and seen until recently a very poor, kind of backward country, is now contributing as of now and rising 15% of all global growth. Um, Close to every fifth person on the planet lives in India, and already more than 400 million Indians have escaped poverty within the last 20 years. So within the last generation, 400 million Indians have escaped poverty, and more will in the generation to come. Remember, Deng Xiaoping took about 800 million Chinese out of poverty, one of the great feats of the 20th century that nobody talks about India is well on course to replicate that that feat. So, despite its Kafkaesque bureaucracy, I mean, and I, and this is true, applying for a, a visa in India makes you want to kill yourself. Uh, it's so incredibly bureaucratic for absolutely no reason, and it has poor infrastructure. It is isn't just the rail tragedy of recent times that we've seen. But in general, every time you're in India, the traffic beggars description. Um, And this is a huge problem for anybody who's ever been there for five minutes. But despite all this, in the last generation, 400 million have been lifted for poverty, and that number is likely to be replicated in the next generation. Also going for India is that it has political stability. Now, many in the mainstream media don't like this because Narendra Modi, who's won two overwhelming victories, um, is likely to win a new term in office Next time around next year. And the BJP party is a populist nationalist party in the mainstream media when you say these words. Hate it. Speaking as a populist nationalist, I don't mind this at all. Uh, The BJP currently has 303 seats in parliament, um, in in the Indian parliament. This is the lower house. You need 273 for a majority, so it has 303. The Congress Party, its main opposition, led by the increasingly feeble Gandhi dynasty, has only 53, with other smaller parties having 189. So the BJP has an absolute majority, which is until recently a very rare thing in Indian politics and, and relatively easily done. And despite certain hiccups like the the Karantaka uh, election and the state election in Karnataka, which is in the south of India that the BJP lost, it's on course to win re-election next time around. And so Modi has political stability in addition to catch-up growth, demography, and growth rates that are the envy of the rest of the world. So India is, for all these reasons, very much a rising power. And anybody who doesn't see this now is a terrible analyst. Even the bad analysts are grudgingly coming around to this fact, much as they hate that Modi and the BJP are nationalist populists, as I am myself. <laughs> but there you go. Um, so what is India's foreign policy given this? Well, India here is also blessed because in many ways it's it's the swing state in the Indo-Pacific, the most important region of the world where all the economic growth and much of the world's political risk peril are, India is really the obvious piece on the chessboard for the West to do more with. Uh, Given its fraught colonial history, which cuts both ways, uh, it certainly has benefited from this in some, in that it has rule of law, people speak English, they have a parliamentary democratic system, and all this should make Western investors flock to India. Better still, they, like the West, are worried about the rise of Chinese adventurism for India. This is the Chinese actually having physical encroachments along the undemarcated border in the Himalaya between China and India, called the line of actual control. And China's actually taken a few hundred square miles recently of Indian territory. So there's this idiotic move on Xi Jinping's part, who certainly he may he may be the chairman of everything. But he's not a very good chairman of anything uh, we we again a problem we have in the West is that we never look at our enemies as making mistakes too and g makes them by the bucketful and indeed, throwing India into America in the West's arms is about the dumbest thing he could do, and that's precisely what he's done so this pivot state, this decisive voice in the most in- important region in the world, is increasingly siding with the United States because they share fears of China. And India being a democracy, being a a fractious democracy, a fractious capitalistic but booming system, having rule of law and a parliament and speaking English, this is frankly an investor's fantasy in the long run. So India, India, India for all you investors out there. And this is what we say to all of our clients and have been saying to give us credit for the last 15 years. We were very, very early to the party for India. People are just catching up now. And I think it's a sign of how proud I am of my firm and how good it is that we saw this early and often and continue to champion India for these reasons I'm laying out. And China has made the worst of this, and and you can see this in the fact that India is a charter member of the nascent NATO quadrilateral initiative, the alliance of great powers uh, that are determined to stop Chinese adventurism. This includes Shinzo Abe's Japan Uh, Narendra Modi's India, so great power Japan, great power India, superpower the United States, and Anglosphere power Australia. Exactly who you'd want to have in this grouping, and India has joined this forthrightly. And so in in the most important strategic organization, India and the United States uh, work closely together. The United States and India are constantly increasing ties. This is symbolized by Modi's coming to the Biden White House for a state dinner, which is a great honor to show how important this alliance is to the United States going ahead. But India being India, nothing is simple. And I would I would caution my American colleagues who think in binary terms, you're either for us or you're against us. It's either 100 percent or nothing. This shows absolutely no knowledge of India. You're never going to get 100 percent of anything in Indian culture, anybody who studies their history or Hinduism will know this, you settle for a good 65% and call it a day. So if the United States attempts to push India into something like a formalistic alliance, it'll end up with nothing. It must learn to think differently in the new era, and this means you're going to have to settle for 65%. Don't crowd the Indians into something like a formal alliance. You don't need to. Just work with them on an interest-based manner, and work with them, as in the Quad, when you can get them into a more formalistic alliance, do so. But don't worry about that. Just work in an interest-based way in terms of its geoeconomics and economic ties increasing between the U.S. and India, and in an increasingly strategic way. But worry less about the form and more about the substance, and you'll do just fine. And learn to accept 65%. There are plenty of areas where the United States and India are not going to going to agree, and in a binary, binary stupid fashion, the United States can't let the good be the enemy of the greater. It's going to end up with nothing in India, and that would be a geostrategic calamity. Rather than settling for nothing, far better than to take the 65-70% and make India an ally, if not one, always firmly in the American camp. And you can see that in India's overall foreign policy orientation at the moment, which is only India can do, is pro-American and Western within the Indo-Pacific and far more neutralist globally. What was was the line of genius that you can hold, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said, you can hold two contradictory ideas at the same time? If this were the case, India has been led by geniuses, because India does this all the time. Why? Why? Why does India have this different global orientation, even though it's pro-Western and pro-American in the region? The answer for that is all the commonalities I mentioned and a common fear of China. But why is this true globally? Why is it more non-aligned and more neutralist? For instance, over the Ukraine war, India, despite American arm twisting, has remained steadfastly neutral. Uh, To give the Biden administration some credit, they have not pushed India into a corner over this, and while at the same time, India has bought up to 33 times more Russian oil in, 19, in in 2022 than it had in the years prior to the war, as Russia can no longer sell oil and natural gas in Europe, it has simply done so. Again, the people who put sanctions in place don't seem to have any understanding of markets. It's merely sold that, that product somewhere else to India and to China. It's made up almost precisely the difference with Europe and in India's bought a whopping thirty-three times more Russian oil in 2022, and at a cut rate which suits energy-starved India to the ground. Uh, but why this difference? Why this neutralism? Well, part of it is, is a long-standing affinity with Russia that goes back to the original Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. India under Nehru and then and then Indira Gandhi, um, his daughter have charted what they call a non-aligned position. But in reality, it was a mix of neutralism towards swinging to the Soviets. It was somewhere between the two, between neutralism and a pro-Soviet position. Um, And Nehru and Indira Gandhi had very strong ties to the Soviets. And indeed, when I go to Delhi, which I love doing, the Americans are the new kid on the block over and over and over again. Russian and Indian diplomats and elites have decades worth of working together and have an easy familiarity that, that we envy and that we lack. And so this elite familiarity is part of it. History is part of it. India ran the non-aligned movement back then and would kind of like to run the non-aligned movement. Now, remember that nine of the 10 most populous countries of the world are neutral over the Ukraine war, and uh, India would like to be in charge of this, this alliance in some coherent way, be it through the BRICS which, of course, is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, or more broadly and more inchoately, places like Mexico, rising regional powers like Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states, uh, places like this. Uh, India wants to be at the forefront of this movement. This has been important to India since Nehru became prime minister after independence, and it remains Uh, a touchstone pushing them to neutralism, if not a pro-Russian position. And at the same time, uh, India still again gets a ton of its oil, an increasing amount from Russia. This is no, no small factor. And it gets most of its weaponry from Russia, though it gets more and more from France, Israel, and the United States. And better kit, it still gets a majority of its weaponry from Russia. And so for reasons, emotional elite reasons, historical reasons, financial reasons relating to energy, geostrategic reasons relating to want to run the non-alive movement of the rest of the world. For all these reasons, India has been neutral um, in a more global sense, not veering toward either the U.S. or China and trying to cut its own path while remaining very Western and pro-American within the region. And the United States should be absolutely fine with this. And to give the Biden administration credit, they haven't crowded India. Um, over this. Despite pushing them on Ukraine, they did back down because they simply needed too much in realist terms to crowd it. And that's a step toward maturity and grown-up behavior. I rarely say anything good about the Biden administration, but I'm an analyst and credit must be given where it's due. And by not pushing India, they've maintained the fact that India In the most important region in the world, the Indo-Pacific, still tilts toward the United States, even if more broadly, for all the reasons I laid out, it remains neutral. Contradictions are what India is about. It's why it's one of the most fascinating places in the world. It is the coming country and coming great power. And the United States must woo it, but in this new era, it must learn to do so on Indian terms if it's to be successful. We're going to have to go back to learning about other cultures, other histories, other religions. And look at what motivates people. One of the glories of realism is that it looks at people from their point of view and not our point of view, Seeing putting ourselves in other people's shoes. And if you can really do that, you can win them over based on interests. And India is the name of the game for that. So far, so good. But realism is the key, the secret sauce that will allow us to lead to success in India. We must learn to settle for 70%, understand the motivations of India's elites, and then the world and the Indo-Pacific are ours for the taking. And India is really where the rubber hits the road. It's the fulcrum of the new era. Nothing is more important, and learning about it is paramount. So for all of those late to the party, welcome, you're 15 years late in your analysis, proving you're bad analysts, but now be good analysts. That means using realism to see the world through India's eyes. Really happy to do this one today before I'm stuck to my chain to my desk ahead of heading off to Andrew Barman and the Network Forum and all the great folks there next week in Athens. Even though we're on the road, I'll keep my promise to you and we'll we'll do something, probably the next in the series of looking at the great powers of the world. I think that's vital. Very happy to do this one though, about the world through India's eyes, because little is more important, little known in the West, and it's one of the great strengths of our firm. Uh, We think about India constantly, and it's so great to be positive about an area growing that is democratic, capitalistic, um, Western-oriented, English-speaking. This is a no-brainer for investment, guys, in the long run. There'll be hiccups in the road, but if you're young and you're looking for a great long-term investment, that's India. Hope you enjoyed this. Very happy to have done this around the world in 20 minutes. For those of you who haven't yet, please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we love that we're booming. And this is becoming more and more important to me as we go forward, our community, and I'll keep them coming. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking $70 a year. That's simply one of my espressos a day. And you get cutting edge, globalized, not not about the transatlantic, but about the world, assessments of where we are and where we're going and where we might end up, and for all of that, great. Again, though, please also do look forward to The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, my new book being published by White Fox, which is going to be available for pre-order in September, and I need you all to write positive reviews to break that darn algorithm of, Amec, of, uh, of Amazon so we can get the book out far and wide, but more about that later. Now on to the next. Hope you enjoyed this.